Hi there. I'm your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I'm a firefighter and EMT with the fire department located just outside of my hometown of Seattle, Washington. Welcome everybody to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind the scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. My guest today is Dr. Scott Heisel. Dr. Heisel is a professor of medicine, infectious diseases, and international health at University of Virginia Health. His primary focus is caring for people with HIV and tuberculosis in endemic areas such as Tanzania, Bangladesh, and Siberia. Since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic a little over a year ago, Dr. Heisel's efforts have centered on treating and mitigating the novel coronavirus in his home state of Virginia. And that's precisely why I wanted Dr. Heisel to join me as my first guest on the Bravest Kind podcast. He and I have both been on the front lines of this pandemic since day one, and we wanted to inform and educate listeners with a firsthand account of what we are seeing on the front lines. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. This is officially the first podcast, and my inaugural guest is Dr. Scott Heisel, physician of internal medicine who specializes in infectious disease and also a a lifelong friend of mine. So very thankful and honored to have you here as my first guest. How are you doing today, Scott? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for having me, Ryan. Absolutely, right? It's, it's good, to, good, good, good to see you, good to hear your voice. Um, so Scott, kind of unique with where we are right now uh, with this pandemic specifically. And uh, one interesting thing or the, the, the paths that you and I have taken, our career paths, uh, you specializing in infectious disease. So this is really in your wheelhouse and myself uh, being a firefighter and on the front lines. And as it so happened, the uh, initial ground zero of this outbreak just happened to be in Kirkland, Washington, where I am a firefighter. Uh, So we've really been at the forefront of this pandemic. And uh, one of the reasons I thought you'd be a great First guess is to give our listeners some insight to, to some of the things that we're seeing out there. So yeah, let's just backtrack a little bit. And so everyone has an idea just about what you've done up to this point in your career. Uh, as I said, you have dedicated your career uh, to infectious disease. And I know really specifically you spent most of your time uh, dealing with HIV and tuberculosis, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct on that. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you've done up to this point uh, prior to uh, this COVID outbreak. And uh, and again, I, I I would just echo your comments. You know, it's been really helpful to talk with with you and with you know other first responders sort of throughout this epidemic and how we've you know really lived through this together. Because you know, as much as we've thought about it or prepared about it, we still have to sort of endure what what we've endured. So um, you know, I think you and and you know those um that are in your field for uh, continuing to to do what you do and to really uh, be there to help you know the entire kind of health system and public health system respond to this uh, epidemic i'm sure we'll probably get into you know some of the ways uh, that we can improve you know as a society and, and um and how we can um you know ameliorate not only this pandemic, uh, although it's hard to sort of see the end at this point, um, as well as prepare for uh, for future pandemics. But um, to your you know kind of first question, so um, it it may be helpful just to describe 
um, a little bit of what I do. So um, I, I'm a, a physician scientist at um, a university. I, I work at uh, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, I have sort of three different jobs. And so I, I teach um, in sort of the more traditional professorial role, uh, primarily medical students or other uh, uh, people in training um, in the medical profession, either internal medicine or infectious diseases. Um, and then I see patients um, and have the opportunity to care for patients uh, primarily with infectious diseases. Um, so those living with HIV um, or other um, sicker patients in the hospital um, and also um, uh, care for some general internal medicine patients. So those adults that um, may have heart failure or pneumonias or other things that, that, um, that end them up in the hospital. Uh, but then the other large part of what I do uh, is research. Uh, and so this is um, uh, working uh, with communities uh, mostly around the world um, where tuberculosis is more endemic. Uh, and tuberculosis uh, is, a, is an ancient infection um, prior to covid uh, it was uh, one of the leading causes, if not the leading cause, from a single infectious disease worldwide. So despite sort of knowing as much as we know about tuberculosis or TB, um, it, it still has an incredible amount of, of morbidity and mortality. And, um, and it, uh, it targets uh, different populations, um, including, as I mentioned, people living with HIV or the human immunodeficiency virus, which can suppress the immune system um, and make it difficult to fight off common infections. Uh, but, but the link between those two diseases and, and sort of where we see tuberculosis in general is, is really that they're socially determined. And so TB is really a, a disease of poverty um, and inequity, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot with COVID. Uh, but then also HIV is, is primarily a disease of, um, of the marginalized. And, and so you can imagine how there's overlap in those populations, but, uh, but then there's a lot of biological overlap where, um, where each, uh, infection, uh, can, can worsen the other once it's in the human. And so, um, so I work primarily to improve outcomes, uh, in people that are infected with, with, um, either TB or, or both TB and HIV, um, and so we have uh, experience with, um, with thinking about infections that originate uh, in different parts of the world, um, but infections that um, are really socially determined. And, and so much of, uh, of COVID, as we've seen, um, is also socially determined. So it, can you explain that a little bit uh, to myself and to the listeners uh, just about that? when you talk about it being socially determined and, and especially with the, all you've done, all the work that you've done with TB, with tuberculosis, and now what you're seeing here yeah. uh, with yeah, this COVID. Absolutely. Pandemic. So dive into that um, a little bit. So deeper. COVID is, um, you know, is a, is a viral infection. It's a respiratory virus that um, uh, can cause a very mild illness in some and is, is usually limited and does not cause a lot of prolonged um, uh problems after the, um, the infection. But as we know, and what's overwhelmed our healthcare system is that if enough people are infected, um, there are very serious complications and few that, um, uh, that require hospitalization and um, mechanical ventilation. So um, 
respiratory support on a breathing machine, um, as well as death. And so we're all very familiar with uh, the numbers for mortality from, from COVID. But at the same time, um, those, uh, those people that are admitted to the hospital um, or uh, suffer death or severe complications, um, those uh, are not distributed equally across different demographics in the U.S. And so we know that COVID has affected uh, communities of color disproportionately, uh, and um, that is driven largely by inequities that we have here in our society. And so that's access to health care, um, that is uh, the cost of health care, and um, there are multiple different reasons as to why um, we have different exposures um, and different risks of exposures to infectious diseases. And so uh, people with TB, uh, for instance, or tuberculosis um, are more likely to uh, develop um, active tuberculosis disease after they've been infected when they develop malnutrition, for instance. Um, and malnutrition is socially determined in the sense that one um, needs money, one needs access to food um, and access to, um, to the ability to obtain food um, in order to prevent malnutrition. And so with COVID, it's often the inability to prevent exposure um, that um, makes this more socially determined. But at the same time, some of the diseases that, um, that are common uh, in causing a worsened COVID infection, such as diabetes or hypertension, high blood pressure, um, those can also be more common in certain social groups, certain racial groups here in the United States. Um, and those reasons for those uh, uh, commonalities are also socially determined. Um, so those of us in infectious diseases do think about this, but it, but it's really a, um, you know, an issue for our larger society and, um, and, and one that, um, you know, the COVID pandemic has really laid bare. All right. So Scott, given everything that you've done and uh, throughout your career up to this point and, 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 and all the, um, uh, research and, and being in the field and really on the front lines, especially, uh, with HIV and tuberculosis, as you explained, was this a surprise to you and fellow, uh, doctors in your field that we had a pandemic of, especially of this magnitude? Yeah, I'd like to, you know, be able to say that it was a surprise, but it, it wasn't. Um, we, you know, as, as challenging it as it is to to live through this, as, as heartbreaking as it is in many ways, um, it was not a surprise. And uh, we um, had, you know, examples of uh, pandemics that um, were close to uh, escaping, so to speak, and, and causing this type of um, effect on the world's, um, you know, population, even as recent as the Ebola, uh, uh, you know, outbreak, if, if you recall, in, in West Africa um, in 2015 and 2016, and, and how the world was on edge, um, whether or not um, containment 
you know, could take place in a way that it wouldn't allow Ebola to spread um, outside of that geographic area. And, and it caused incredible, you know, devastation um, to local populations. But it was this huge coordinated response that, um, you know, that ultimately uh, contained Ebola. Um, and it, it's a different virus. Um, you know, the virus that we have now in the novel coronavirus is, is really, you know, the design that, that one might, you know, uh, 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 put down on paper if they were to be asked to, you know, to come up with a virus that, that, um, that would cause such devastation worldwide. And so, you know, it's quite transmissible. So you're saying this is like the one, this is the perfect, almost the perfect storm, if you will, of what occurred with this specific virus. Yeah, it, it is. Um, there, you know, you need a virus that is going to infect a huge number of people, but it's not going to kill everybody. Um, you know, if it, if it, if it killed everyone, people wouldn't be able to transmit it to one another in such a way. Um, and, um, and at the same time, we've experienced, you know, a coronavirus um, uh, pandemic. And so SARS or the original severe acute respiratory syndrome um, was a coronavirus. And that's why we call this SARS-CoV-2 or, or the, the second coronavirus uh, that's caused this type of pandemic. And um, and so certain societies that experienced SARS um, in a different way, more, you know, uh, um, uh, upfront and, 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 and devastatingly so, um, had then I think better preparation um, for um, for our current pandemic, and so these primarily included China, South Korea, other countries of Southeast Asia um, that that experienced SARS um, in a way that um, that we didn't hear in the U.S., for instance. But we think about um, influenza or the flu, um, and it's common to think about uh, pandemic flu and how to uh, to prevent um, a, a type of um, pandemic influenza strain, um, that's one that we probably thought would be more likely to, um, to cause um, this type of, um, of worldwide impact. Um, but, um, but there were other you know, uh, uh, organizations that were preparing for, uh, for just such a pandemic. Um, and so there was, in, in the Obama administration, um, a, a pandemic um, uh, biodefense unit at the National Security Council, and so elevated to the conversation of daily discussion. Um, and this was largely because of the Ebola uh, outbreak. Um, and that was in part um, dissolved um, in the Trump administration um, for unclear reasons, um, but um, but it's, it, it's not entirely certain that, um, you know, that we had the same, of course, uh, pandemic response at that level um, uh, that we may have had um, should that uh, unit have been continued. So what do you think? And I, I don't want to get into necessarily, you know, politics on the show or anything, but I am curious, you were mentioning about that. I don't know if task force is the right term or what during the Obama administration, had that still been in place when we were originally uh, hit here with the coronavirus in the U S how, how do you think the outcome would have differed potentially? Or is that, I mean, I know that's a, a who knows. It's hard to know. I mean, these are the sort of counterfactual questions that are, are difficult to answer. Um, they're appropriate to ask and think about and discuss. Um, and like I said, it's, it's really hard to know, you know, under a different um, 
administration. I think one of the um, ways in which a pandemic response, you know, early in the epidemic, um, we would have had, uh, you know, a more national shutdown of um, of businesses, social gatherings, early mask use um, that we saw, you know, probably not the Wuhan response, but uh, but in you know places like South Korea, and I think that that um, having been done earlier, even weeks earlier than what was originally done, um, most of the models would suggest that um, there would have been a much more limited transmission. And all of that to say that um, you know, regardless of how prepared we would have been in our current um, uh, you know, national response, I think we still would have had a disproportionate um, uh, impact from the epidemic, primarily from the inequities that I was speaking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so we just don't have the public health um, uh, infrastructure that we could have um, in our country. And I think there's incredible opportunity to uh, think about how to um, narrow inequities, not just inequities to healthcare, but all other inequities in our society. Um, and, and one of those is to, um, uh, to think about how um, all Americans um, can have access to, uh, to public health. Um, yeah. And that's just not yeah. the case yeah. uh, currently. No, yeah. and I know that's been, I mean, you know, so much of your work has been international, mm-hmm. correct? I mean, and this has really brought you in and, and again, being uh, good friends with you and keeping keeping up to date with one another's lives. I, I know you're uh, you travel a lot and are gone for large stretches and do a lot of work in um, in different countries within Africa uh, as well as Siberia, right? If That's I'm right. not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this has really put you home. I'm assuming a lot a lot more than the last year. Uh, has that has that change your outlook on the healthcare system here? Has that opened your eyes anymore? Or is it, I mean, I know, I know you're in it no matter what, but how, how has that been? Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly allowed a lot of, um, I think reflection, um, and hopefully growth, you know, in terms of how I think about, um, the work that we do outside of the U S and, and, um, how similar, um, uh, there are, uh, problems um, and opportunities for improving health here, you know, locally, um, and and I think that you know many of us have um, have had you know the opportunity for that kind of reflection, you know, over the course of uh, this year, and um, I don't think it's a coincidence that you know we've had um, you know for instance the movement for Black Lives and really the the you know the the reckoning that a lot of um, people in the U.S. have you know had to to sort of experience for the first time um, with regard you know specifically to racial inequities, but um, uh, but I don't think that that's a coincidence that that's happened over the course of a summer where people may have you know simply been um, uh, forced into different routines, um, less likely to kind of occupy the same you know, social structures and, and maybe just a little bit more time kind of, you know, at home to, uh, to think about these things. And, and, uh, and I think that's motivated a lot of people and that's maybe a, you know, some of the silver lining to, you know, to 
what has been such a devastating, uh, you know, devastating pandemic. Um, but, you know, as an example, so you mentioned Siberia um, and we work um, in tuberculosis uh, uh, and in HIV, uh, as I mentioned. And so um, in a particular area in Siberia, um, HIV is, is driven um, largely by injection drug use. And so people are injecting um, opioids, um, heroin, and, um, and there's um, a, a significant amount of incarceration related to injection drug use, and that behavior has been criminalized. And so um, uh, there's a cycle of acquisition of tuberculosis in prisons. There is HIV that's, that's transmitted through injection drug use. Um, and then one gets HIV and becomes more susceptible to developing tuberculosis or worsening of sure. tuberculosis disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets back to how all of this is very much socially driven. Um, and so we think about, you know, incarceration and prison populations um, in, in Siberia. And here, um, you know, the, uh, Russia is second in the world in terms of incarcerating people, in terms of the their total numbers and proportion of society, whereas the United States is the first. And so, you know, we have 4% or so of the world's population and we incarcerate one out of, you know, every five people that are incarcerated in the world are here in, in the U.S. And at the same time, we've seen COVID just run like wildfire through uh, incarcerated populations, prison systems, um, spilling out into the community and people dying for a sentence that, you know, was not a life sentence. Um, this was not a, not, not a life sentence to be in prison and yet, um, you know, yet dying in prison from COVID. And that same one in five number I was just reading recently, um, in the Marshall project, uh, reports, um, where one in five, uh, of, of those uh, incarcerated in the U.S. have had COVID. There are some That's places crazy, like yeah. South Dakota where it's three in five people have That's had amazing. COVID. So yeah. it's just, it's crazy. And, and so, so this is, you know, um, something that we've tolerated. You know, we've just perplexingly tolerated this kind of uh, inequity. And, um, you know, there's just, there's just a, a significant need you know, for instance, to decarcerate, to, re- you know, remove people from incarceration. Um, and, um, and, and I think that that's very justifiable, um, morally, ethically, um, and now from, you know, from a public health standpoint. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's just an example of, of something that, you know, um, ha- I- I've had to sort of consider in a different way. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, I'm thankful to do so, but yeah. we could probably do an entire an entire conversation yes. <laughs> simply around that, huh? Well, let's talk a little bit uh, again. You you brought up this task force during the Obama administration that was very stripped apart uh, during the Trump administration. I, you know, I've, I hear a lot of people that talk about coronavirus and specifically uh, COVID and this pandemic that it's a uh, it's politically motivated and this and that. Um, what are, what, what's your response to that? That those that think this is either a made up 
uh, made up disease altogether or something that's really not that big of a deal or that was politically motivated uh, from your standpoint um, as a scientist, as a doctor, as, 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 as someone that actually researches this? What do you say to that? Yeah, I, I think, and, and I'm sure you, you know, you've had similar experiences in, you know, in your line of work as well, where you're talking about, you know, certain public health measures that, you know, that should be enforced, and and working with the the, the public, and you know, working with different um, opinions. Um, I, I think that this is a challenge that, you know, a lot of us share, um, and at the same time, this is just you know, a huge opportunity um, in order to, uh, you know, work with, um, uh, with, with people um, that uh, have, I would say, you know, differently informed opinions. And I think that that's where I like to start mm-hmm. with this is that, mm-hmm. you know, there's just an incredible amount of, um, uh, of information that is, delivered in a, in a way that, um, was not the case even 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, we can live in, in really, um, alternative kind of, um, uh, news environments and information environments. Um, and so I I like to ask, you know, where people receive their information. Um, it's always Mm -hmm. helpful to know kind of where people are, are coming from. And, and I've had conversations with, with people, for instance, in my clinic population, um, and it, it's helpful to know, you know, if, if most of your, um, information is coming from social media, from Facebook, for instance, um, and we know just how tailored that, that information can become and how targeted that information can become. And so, um, at the same time, I think it's also important to acknowledge that, um, there's appropriate mistrust of institutions, uh, mm-hmm. of government, um, uh, that includes, you know, the police force, the, the you know, um, uh, the public health um, uh, system in which, you know, first responders and, and, and you know, uh, healthcare providers like myself are a part of. Um, there's appropriate mistrust and, and there's a historical abuse of that trust um, uh, in, you know, in certain populations. And so I think that we can't, you know, um, uh, we can't ignore, you know, our own history in, in terms of, of that. And so you know, certain aspects of mistrust are just not going to be changed uh, overnight. Um, And so uh, I think that the, you know, the, the real heartache from all of this is that, um, that, you know, an issue like mask wearing um, could have been so politicized Mm -hmm. um, at so early on. I I think that's something that, you know, if we were to go back with a magic wand and, and have changed or have changed you know, sort of one thing, um, it would have been, you know, the, the politicization of, of, of mask use. But, um, but I, I think that these are just, you know, really important conversations to, to have, to find out where someone is coming from, what, you know, what their belief system is, um, where they receive their information. Um, and, um, and knowing that, you know, uh, we, um, you know, are just sort of part of an ongoing conversation that they may have. And, um, and we've had people that have, um, you know, had hesitancy about, um, uh, vaccination. Um, this is not related to COVID vaccination, which Mm -hmm. is so new, um, but related to other vaccines, you know, and having, 
um, distrust in science and distrust in um, the healthcare establishment. Um, and that has been related um, or translated rather to, um, uh, to lack of vaccine uptake. Um, but at the same time, you know, with messaging, particularly from people that um, relate to them, uh, people that, you know, if someone looks like me and relates to me, um, then I'm much more likely to, um, you know, to receive their advice well. And, and so, um, so I think it's helpful to have, you know, messaging from trusted community members. Um, and, uh, and that's where we've seen a lot of um, improvement with regard to vaccine uptake um, in, in other uh, uh, diseases. Well, let's let's talk about that. You're you've been vaccinated, yes. I have. Yep. As have I. I'm, yep. Which I, I I feel great about, and mm-hmm. it seems as though that's the only way we're going to get back to quote unquote normal, whatever that yeah. right. means and is anymore. What is your uh, belief around the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine? Uh, I think that the the safety is is really well documented now um, for multiple different manufacturers of the vaccine. And the companies uh, have been very transparent um, with the sharing of those data. Um, And there's been um, really a unusual amount of cooperation among companies in sharing uh, both safety and efficacy data. Uh, And that's a bit, like I said, a bit, you know, a bit uncommon for uh, for vaccine rollout in what still remains, you know, competitive. Sure, um, more of a business uh, cap- kind of getting there first. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's kind of throwing that to the side for the good of the cause, huh? That's right. Um, and with regard to, you know, two of the vaccines um, that are um, using a particular um, technology, um, th- they're really quite efficacious. And so these are the two that we primarily have available here in the U.S., outside of clinical trials, and that's um, uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Um, these are over 90% effective at preventing COVID um, and um, even more so at uh, preventing severe COVID or, or the type of illness that would have one admitted to the hospital. This is a really um, uh, significant um, benefit that we often don't see with other vaccines. For instance, year to year with the flu vaccine, um, the efficacy can be far less than that, depending on the strain of the flu. Um, so, you know, so taken together, this is a very safe vaccine and a very effective vaccine. Um, I think that, you know, what is um, uh, being demonstrated in some of the other um, vaccine studies around the world um, are, are both um, encouraging, but then can also give us a little bit of pause. And so, the, um, you know, the, the, all of the vaccines are not equally efficacious. And so it's going to depend on what company's vaccine is sort of available in a certain area. Um, and then there was a recent um, study by Novavax, um, which is um, a vaccine that was tested um, in South Africa, uh, South Africa and the UK. And in the UK, it was more effective, um, up to 80% effective. Um, and then that efficacy dropped in South Africa. Um, and, uh, the majority of the strains in South Africa were of a particular variant. So that mutated variant, um, there's now three or four common worldwide 
uh, variants, um, one of which is in South Africa, uh, that's more transmissible um, and now maybe less likely to be uh, uh, to be prevented by the vaccine. Okay, I was yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I know there has been a lot so that in was the media kind of, about these new variants, and I was so yeah. So it is seeming as though maybe the vaccine that we currently have might not be as effective towards maybe some of these variants and specifically that one that we're seeing in, or that y'all are seeing in South Africa. I, I think that, that that's the, the caution right now. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that we know that for certain, and we may not know that on a large scale. So it's possible that, you know, that we have this window of time that if we were to vaccinate huge numbers of people in a relatively short window of time, that there would be enough of a decrease in the amount of virus that's circulating that some of these variants um, would not have the impact that they have. And so um, it, it all really rests on you know how much uh, of the population is vaccinated. And the, the hard thing to really you know, grapple with, and again, this is back to the equity question, you know, the hard thing to grapple with is that that certain countries now will um, have had access and will be able to vaccinate their populations um, much earlier um, than other countries. And uh, other countries may still be suffering, you know, significant uh, uh, covid uh, related pandemics um, or, or COVID-related transmission within their own country as part of the pandemic, um, and yet not have access to the vaccine. And then what's what's wild is it's that you may have, and there's some projections that there there may be countries that that may not receive the vaccine for three years, you know, five years from now. Sheesh. And um, and you know, there's a country like Israel that made you know special. Um, uh, provisions ahead of time and had the, you know, had the economic, um, you know, uh, storehouse to do so, so to speak, to purchase vaccine and pre-purchase vaccine. They also have a public health infrastructure very different than um, their oppressed neighbor um, in, uh, in Palestine, for instance. But, uh, but that um, public health infrastructure, um, uh, people have a considerable amount of trust in and they were able to deliver a huge amount of vaccine over a short period of time. It was record time getting a it vaccination was. to market, which is really Absolutely. impressive. And as you said, a lot of these drug companies actually kind of put the gloves down and work together. Yep. Where do you fall kind of on the hope and despair meter? <laughs> <laughs> do you tend to fall more towards the hope or, or despair right now? I mean, where, where... I, I, of course, always remain hopeful. We, we must remain hopeful um, or else there's no point. <laughs> That, that alone that alone is a little bit despairing <laughs> right. right but I hear you yeah we have to act as as though Absolutely. you know think things are gonna end up for the worst but yes um, yeah I think that you know the, the window of time is really shrinking and um, we we could have prepared much better for this um, and uh, at the same time despite all of our best preparations I think our society, is not set up to deliver public health um, in a, you know, an expeditious and uh, and large enough scale. Um, the, um, you know, there's so many debates in terms of, of how we could do, do differently and should we change course 
Um, and, um, you know, should we have actually, you know, distributed vaccine to frontline healthcare workers? Um, and you may have, I'm sure, you know, you, you felt incredibly grateful to receive that vaccine, um, as did I. Um, and, you know, we recall all those times where we're, you know, hesitant to walk into a room or, you know, in your case, into an emergency situation and not know if, if someone's infected and not, you know, know about, you know, the transmission dynamics, particularly early in the epidemic. And, and we're concerned about infecting others and, and the safety of our own um, loved ones and our own community. Um, so you feel grateful to, to then have received this vaccine. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I'm at a very low risk of uh, developing complications currently, mm -hmm. fortunately. Um, we've also had incredibly negligible transmission within a healthcare setting um, at this stage of the epidemic. Um, yeah. And it's different than it was in New York, um, in Seattle um, at the beginning uh, of the uh, of the epidemic, and we have adequate PPE or personal protective equipment, um, and we test regularly for uh, for COVID in our patients. And so, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are just fewer circumstances where we may be at risk of getting uh, of getting COVID. So, um, so you can make the argument, you know, should we have spent, you know, the first month vaccinating frontline healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of frontline healthcare workers that, you know, that could have had a very strong argument to walk out, you know, on the job. And it probably would have devastated morale. And morale is hugely important uh, through all of this. But, um, you know, but I, I think we're far behind in terms of vaccinating people over the age of 65. Um, we're far behind in, in vaccinating um prison systems, as I've mentioned, uh, nursing homes, and other very vulnerable populations. And we're far behind reaching out into um, uh, to communities of color and people that are disproportionately impacted by COVID disease. Um, so you know, it's just, it's so hard. And then what I was getting at before is that, you know, I am also experiencing a little bit of survivor's guilt with regard to receipt of this vaccine when I know that there are colleagues that I work with in other locations um, across the world, that there are communities across the world that um, are suffering with COVID um, that will not receive the vaccine in any timely way. It's quite possible that they continue to have enough transmission within a community outside of the United States, that then new variants are created, that then make our vaccinated population less likely to have benefit from the vaccine. So it's this cycle where unless we distribute vaccine equitably across the world, then uh, we may ultimately still be suffering this kind of COVID you know, in perpetuity um, you know, for some time. And I think that's really, you know, what we need to, you know, to understand is that, um, you know, that this is not going away anytime soon. And, um, and if we don't have a worldwide 
strategy um, of cooperation, um, then uh, it it is likely uh, to continue to be a problem. It's, a, a, there's a a lot in that response right there that I wanted yeah. to dive into, and um, yeah. it's interesting you say that about the um, perpetuity and with the vaccine. You know, my wife mentioned that a little bit ago the other day we were talking and yeah. said, you know, I wonder if this vaccine then is actually, you know, these viruses, they're, they're finding ways to mutate and to, and to stay alive. And, you know, is that vaccine, could it actually be exasperating that mutation process and the variants? And like you said, if we don't get enough people vaccinated, that very well could, could, could turn in uh, to the case. I, I, what else really jumped out at me is you said, this isn't, going away anytime soon. And and the reality is probably never, right? I mean, we've been dealing with influenza and even the common cold and yep. other viruses and, 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 and we just, we just have to deal. I mean, do we get to a point where, where do we go from here? I mean, so mm-hmm. we've, we've, we've done these lockdown measures. Uh, my kids still aren't back in school. I don't, I don't know if yours are at home or if they started going to school. Are yours back in? Yeah. So the option is to, the option is to go back to school now. Um, uh, there was a brief period of time where our, our case uh, load uh, and, and transmission was increasing here locally. Uh, but then now that's, you know, that's the, the option now is, is to go back to school and, in person. And, you know, fortunately, the the CDC has come out with much stronger recommendations mm-hmm. now about the safety of going back to school. Um, this coincides with, of course, vaccine availability. And I think, um, you know, many more teachers um, and uh, school staff will have access to vaccine and that will help, you know, people feel more comfortable about going back and teaching. But um, what, what is your feeling on that? Because that, that's especially living out here in Seattle, we seem to be amongst the most uh, uh, drastic in terms of yeah, just with a lot of lockdown measures up and down the West Coast. Yeah. I know it's that way. And, and my kids uh, still, there's been who are both in public schools with the, with, within yeah. the Seattle public school system. Um, and I'm very much an advocate for in-person learning. I'll just say that. It doesn't seem like there's been a lot of uh, cases of, of mass outbreaks within school settings, especially so long as they're done well, but there there still seems to be um, a lot of trepidation around that, especially out here, whether that's from the teachers themselves and even a lot of, a, a lot of parents. What, what's your take on that? I think it's, I think it's natural, as you said, to kind of have that trepidation. I think that's, that's really, you know, what we should, you know, think about as parents is, is sort of the safety of our children. And then as teachers, sort of the safety of that school environment. Um, I think that we didn't know that quite as well early in the epidemic. And I think that there was, you know, a lot of appropriate measures taken earlier on to, uh, to limit potential spread within uh, the school system. Um, and it also speaks a little bit again to the, the ongoing critique you've, you've heard me, you know, have of, of sort of the inequities that justify mm-hmm. our lack of public health um, infrastructure here in the U.S. But, you know, we could have had those studies um, that would have reassured us, I think, earlier on in the epidemic, should we have had a more robust response um, and a coordinated response to, um, uh, to the pandemic um, that involved the Department of Education, that involved, um, you know, studying um, uh, transmission 
you know, very early um, and understanding that very early in the school setting. Um, but just as you said, you know, we, we've had um, a, a few important um, studies that have demonstrated that uh, opening schools in a safe way um, with masks as best, you know, people can and socially distancing as best people can um, uh, really um, have uh, have demonstrated the safety of, of being able to open schools. And, and it's not without zero risk. Um, but uh, what I think there's more and more evidence for and what many of the um, uh, organizations that sort of organize around child health, um, including, um, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics and even locally here, you know, we've had, I think, every one of our local pediatricians sign on to a letter to open up uh, public right? schools. And yeah. in part because, you know, the balance then of, of risk of transmission, which is real but small, um, is you have um, the mental social, sure. emotional, and physical health mm. of, of children. And, um, and I think that, you know, we've seen it at the extremes, right? Where, you know, if you're a well-adjusted eight-year-old um, and you've had some experience with screens and you've had access to screens, you know, you're probably doing okay. Um, but, you know, if you are, um, you know, a younger child um, uh, and, and you're um, having difficulties um, you know, you're, you're sort of, um, having those challenges exacerbated here, um, in the, in the virtual, uh, learning and well, look, and let's, let's, let's call it what it is. <laughs> I mean, sorry to cut you off there. No, okay. You're talking about yeah. that inequality and so much that comes down to social factors. It's yeah. just, this is also creating a bigger divide yeah. in gap in those that have access, as you said, their screen time that have, uh, whether it's parents that can spend the time working with them, whether it's people that have the financial means to hire right. a tutor, um, a teacher. I mean, we have our daughter in a little pod, a little micro pod. And so, yeah, if you have them, it's just going to create that much more of a divide. And once again, coming back to something that you've harped on throughout this whole thing and, and what you see a lot in infectious disease, that it really decimates uh, populations of lower socioeconomic uh, standings. And I think we're seeing that same impact by not having these kids in school. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. that there will be, you know, a lot of consequences that, you know, that we're only um, beginning to imagine and that we're yeah. probably going to see, you know, three to five years mm -hmm. down, down the road. Um, yeah. um, this will be a, this will be a COVID generation for sure. If this is something that's, here and here to stay. And yes, we're working on the, the vaccine and hopefully we can get that continue to roll out and get those percentages up closer to that sub magic 70% number that we want. But do you foresee a day that we are back to attending concerts and going out to restaurants and going to sporting events? And I mean, is this just simply something that is now here and we're going to need to figure out a way to live with it or is that naive thinking on my behalf that are those like longing for the days of yesteryear kind of nostalgia i don't think it's i don't think it's naive um but uh yeah there's lots of lots of longing i would love to get on a plane right now um right. without a mask and i you know i'd love to 
to go to a ball game uh, yeah. with a whole bunch of other people, you know, crowded around me. Um, but um, I think that um, we're going to end up in this post 9-11 world. I think we need to, you know, fortify ourselves a little bit and temper our expectations where um, there will be changes that will likely be permanent. Um, and I imagine, you know, again, that the 9-11 example just being related to travel. Yeah. And, um, and I, I imagine that there will be a mask requirement for travel. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was fever checks um, and how that was, you know, um, ultimately uh, administered in terms of, you know, one's ability to travel. I'm not sure, but um, because it won't just be this this particular pandemic. So it won't be COVID. It'll be, you know, COVID plus the concern for, um, you know, the next COVID, um, not COVID-19, but, you know, COVID-2025 or something, right? Um, so there'll be enough of a concern about that that I think that um, that some of our behaviors will change. And um, and so I, I wonder, um, honestly, about even, you know, the mass gatherings and um, and whether or not there'll be, you know, a type of mask wearing, you know, in a in a mask, a mass gathering scenario. Um, but but you're right. I, I think that um, we will be experiencing the consequences of, of COVID uh, for the rest of our lives and, and some of which will be beneficial. Um, I mentioned earlier about, you know, shining light on uh, the inequities in our society and whether or not we can, you know, dismantle some of the forces that are driving those, but, but others are just going to be, you know, a total, uh, a total challenge. Um, We need, you know, get, find our, find our favorite mask size and, and, be ready to, uh, yeah, to go forward. Um, but certainly travel, I, I, I'd imagine that we'll all be masked and that's just going to be, um, you know, part of what we do. And, uh, there may be fever checks, there may be tests of negativity that are required. Um, and there'll be an, you know, an incredible amount of debate in terms of how that's implemented. Um, I don't know what about, about a vaccine. What about a card? I'm going to interrupt real yeah, quick. Sure. Any any thought of travel, be it international travel or going to events, that you might have to show a proof of vaccination, actually show a card? Do you think we'll get to that point, or is that a little too? I, I, I'm big not rubbish? sure that we're going to be there. In part because the you know the vaccine is going to be so again inequitably distributed um and uh i don't think you know with regard to international travel or other things that we're necessarily going to get to that point but you know it exists for other infectious diseases and so um i have a yellow fever vaccination uh card that that documents my vaccination that um uh, is required for access to certain uh countries in in um uh, yellow fever endemic settings. And, sure. and, and so that's not inconceivable. Um, it may be less likely with sort of a global uh, pandemic and, and the, you know, the differential access to vaccine. Um, but I, I'm just not sure about, you know, other mass gatherings. You know, I think that's where things may also change as much as I'm looking forward to, you know, to all of that. Um, I wonder if that will also not be, you know, uh, a masked event um, in some ways. Um, I think that we'll get back to some sense of normal, um, you know, if I had the crystal ball now, 
um, to eating um, in restaurants and, and sort of, you know, smaller gatherings um, in places where um, vaccine uh, where places where viral transmission is low. And so I think we'll have a better idea of sort of continuous monitoring um, uh, probably, you know, in hospital systems and elsewhere where we can see sort of, you know, where viral transmission is. And we may need to expect, you know, periodic changes in life that, you know, we reach a point where there's just too much transmission in one community, in one region, and the decision is made to slow that transmission by another form of lockdown or increased restrictions on transmission. You know, it is amazing how adaptable we are as yeah. humans. And I, I'm re- I really marvel at my kids' ability to roll with this. And I, I think a lot of I think a lot of my feelings towards what I perceive to be them missing out on is, is just that it's my perceptions, you know, maybe me harking back to my childhood and thinking mm-hmm. about what they're missing out on. But as you said, this is a COVID generation and I, I don't think that they necessarily look at it that way. And just like with kids. And as you said, just as we've adapted to travel post nine 11, I'm sure we'll figure out ways for uh, us to adapt to this new normal. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess what I really want to know is we are now season ticket holders to the Seattle Kraken, the new NHL team that's coming to Seattle beginning yeah. the fall of this year of 21. I mean, am I going to be going to the stadium watching hockey this fall, Scott? That's the real question right now. Good. That is a good question. Um, yeah, I, I cannot predict um, that answer. But no, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, you're required to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll get to a point where there's low level viral transmission and large, you know, gatherings will open up, but they'll open up with fever checks and masks. And, you know, perhaps, you know, my, my, you know, my, my, my sister-in-law lives in Japan, uh, my wife's sister, and that's, uh, well, not a re well, not a mandate. I mean, very much a part of the culture in, in a lot of Asian countries, anytime in public wearing, wearing a mask. And as you said, that might be just something that. Yeah. I think that we, you know, we desperately need as, you know, a human, (laughs) a human species to get back to the point where we're in close contact with one another. Um, I think that's something that we're really missing. Um, You know, speaking to, you know, people that I care for, and I'm sure that, you know, you've come across that, you know, in, nursing homes or other settings where, um, you know, there's just prolonged physical isolation um, that is, it's just really um, not human. And so I, I think that, you know, there's going to be this balance as we kind of move forward. And and I think we should understand that, like, it's probably just not going to be a switch where all of a sudden we're back to normal, but there's going to be kind of this, you know, dynamic of, of you know, back and forth that we'll, we'll need to get used to. But but we absolutely need to get back to, you know, uh, feeling comfortable and in, in, you know, physical contact with with one another. So especially at a hockey, right, hockey yeah. rink, you know, I mean, you can't play <laughs> hockey without without some physical contact. So. You, you really can't. And, you know, you can't be a rabid fan without that either. No. Uh, um, OK, so I'm going to I'm going to before we wrap this up, I'm going to bring this down. We've been talking uh, primarily about uh the the pandemic and, and COVID and and life as we now know it, we're gonna we're gonna get to know a little bit about more about Dr. Scott Heisel here outside of being an infectious disease extraordinaire. Uh, so these are gonna be our parting shots. Okay, I'm gonna give you a few questions and you just you just roll with the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, 
All right. Number number one of our parting shots here, Dr. Heisel, a book or TV show that you can't stop talking about to others. Oh, wow. Um, I've spoken a lot about inequities today. Um, I'm going to throw out a book title that I think every white person should read, and it's called okay. White Fragility. And uh, I can't stop talking about it. Um, I think it is, is, you know, certainly changed my perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, we need to be responsible for uh, our role uh, in this inequity crisis. And, and I really enjoyed uh, learning about how to speak to that role uh, a bit better. Um, so yeah, white fragility. White fragility, I'll put it on deck. I'm uh, reading right now. Um, yeah, what, what do you say? Uh, Gar- I'm reading uh, in the, um, oh my gosh, it's Eric Larson's. It's in the, uh, in, in the, in the Garden of Beasts. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's about the tale of... Um, takes place in early thirties, uh, Nazi Germany yeah. and the family that was sent to be the U S ambassador, uh, in Germany, which it's fascinating, you know, uh, historical nonfiction, but reads, reads much like fiction. So it's, but white fragility, check it out. Okay. Uh, a non-living thing that you cannot live without. So you can't choose a, can't choose a family member here. Right. Um, a non-living thing. I don't know. This is, I'm going to say, uh, you know, again, what I am craving kind of pre-COVID is my U.S. passport. How fortunate I am to have a U.S. passport. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's uh, granted me access to uh, to places and people for which I'm truly grateful. So, yeah. Looking forward to putting that to use again, for sure. Yeah. Uh, All right. If you were not a physician, what would you be doing for work? I was an English major and uh, I developed a, you know, great book list and, and I always really enjoy writing and believe it or not, like there's a ton of writing in what I do now. Um, I write a lot of grants to receive funding, to do research and, um, I write a lot of scientific articles and chapters to describe findings of research and, and sort of advances in the medical field. But um, yeah, I think it would, would maybe be a journalist. So I have a lot of respect for journalists in terms of sort of uncovering the truth. And that's sort of what we like to think we do a lot in science. But um, but to uncover the truth and then also, um, just to be able to tell the story. And so, um, I've really enjoyed that aspect of medicine to be able to, you know, to share other people's stories. And, um, and so I, I think that I could, you know, kind of find a, find a happy medium there in, in the field of journalism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, a couple of interesting things for our listeners. One, You've been one of those individuals, and I, I, I really uh, admire you for it. And I think you're very lucky. I, if if you if we would have had a conversation as middle schoolers, I think a very you probably were on the path to being a doctor. Even then, I, I feel like that was you're unlike myself, who as a 44 year old man, I think <laughs> yeah. I'm on career number four here as a firefighter, which is normal, already. by the way. That's like totally normal. Yeah, yeah. no, it's fine, and I, I've I've found my I found my sweet spot, and uh, <laughs> right. it's everything that exactly. I've been through has led me to where I am now, which is a great place. Uh, but I really do feel like that has been your trajectory. 
uh, uh, throughout. And, um, and thank goodness that we have uh, somebody like yourself doing this kind of work. Uh, but I do remember a time, maybe this was in college, maybe right after mm-hmm. you were probably in med school at OHSU, that Oregon Health and Sciences University. And I was a recent grad. And I remember you talking about that. You were already discussing in retirement years that you'd maybe want to be a, a, a prof <laughs> at a community college, I believe was your exact thing. So here we are, uh, 20 something years later, and you're, you're echoing the same word. So that just holds true. As I said, I, you're, you, you, you are true in yourself. You've, uh, I feel like you're, you, your, your heart and, uh, your interests and then what you do are, are often aligned. And that's a, a really powerful thing. No, thank, thank you for that. Um, I, I may be just be unoriginal. I think that's a possibility of it. <laughs> well, you're not that for the, for, for those that know you, you're, you're quite original. Um, and, so. and for those that, know, that don't know you, you know, it, it takes a lot of risk. Um, and, uh, you know, you've been one that sort of had a lot of calculated risk in your life in order to, you know, to choose different careers at different points of time and to, you know, to try something new on, so to speak, um, uh, takes a lot of courage. And so, I think that that's, you know, something that ultimately, like you said, you sort of found the sweet spot and it's pretty sweet. Um, but it, you know, it also took a lot of courage to get there. So no, yeah, no, I, I, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, uh, I, I think there is something to be said about having that, having that itch and actually scratching it, you know, and, um, and then it just often, yeah, sometimes you got to look back, you know, I think there's that, uh, you know, Steve Jobs in his famous commencement speech that he once did to Stanford talked about connecting the dots. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes when you're doing things, you don't always know if they're going to lead you to where you want to go. But if you have belief in it and um, that, that what you're doing are, are the right steps and it ultimately takes you to where you want to go. Um, okay, two two final parting shots here. You are happiest when? Yeah, I mean, this will be a little generic, but uh, it's, it's what I'm, you know, with my wife, Tanya, and my kids, uh, Asher and Dahlia. Um, it's not every time I'm with them, but it's like, you know, <laughs> the, the good, the good times Sorry. when we're together now. Um, so it's, yeah, it's there. It's like, yeah, uh, probably, probably reading a book and like someone telling a joke and everyone laughing. So. I know simple, the simple things, simple things. And like you said, I mean, that's one thing about, uh, I think a lot of us have had a lot more time, uh, for better or worse at home, but there, there has been, you mentioned earlier about the silver linings and, and certainly I think it, this has allowed a lot of, a lot of people to reconnect, uh, reprioritize, um, certain things in life. And, and hopefully for a lot that, that is one of them, that reconnection, even though, you know, on the flip side of that, I guess not being able to see, um, the family members, but mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that immediate, you know, for those that are fortunate enough to have a nuclear family at home, that's right. Um, yeah. really reconnecting. Okay. Last thing, uh, you have to do something that you are scared of. What do you, what, 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 how, how do you, how do you process that before taking action? Oh, how do I process it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or what, what do you do? I mean, or you just, yeah, you, you, you're, you're, you're called upon something to do that you're, uh, that, that you're scared of doing. How do you react? Uh, yeah, there's, <laughs> I don't know if it comes through quite in, in our shared time on this podcast, but um, there's going to be a little humor involved. I think I have to kind of like take the challenge down a few notches, um, usually with a little bit of humor and sort of, you know, yeah, finding, you know, finding my place in, in the problem. But um, 
but then there's just going to be like a little bit of reflection and then uh a lot of yeah a lot of sort of focus on uh sort of the one step that's going to lead you to the next uh step and um you know knowing that you can always take a few steps back and sort of course correct but um but you know inaction and indecision and, and pause are are important definitely but that they'll have their own consequences as well so um i don't know it's a little bit more philosophical uh, answer but um yeah i um i i've had some you know some challenging sort of you know frightening situations but um it's usually been in the accompaniment of a team and so i've i've also had you know the fortune to sort of rely on other people in those situations. Yeah, that's but you know that's one of the great things of uh, in the fire department working with the crew. And you mentioned humor and levity, and levity is a big one. We see some pretty uh, gnarly things that most people that we probably aren't meant to see, and, and can be difficult to cope and process with. And uh, just having a crew, but often levity gets us through a lot of a lot of tough situations. Well, Dr. Scott Heisel, I thank you very much for your time and continue doing all the work that you're doing. I know we're all very appreciative of it, and um, I look forward to being able to connect with you again soon. Yeah, you as well. And thanks so much for this opportunity. Um, and uh, uh, I really, really enjoyed the discussion. So, all right. Likewise, right. Scott. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanschaefer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. Be brave.